This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture once and for all and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 150 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Judith Matz, an anti-diet therapist and author and a really uh, amazing badass clinician who's been in the field for many years. We talked about shifting the focus of emotional eating toward the underlying deprivation and diet mentality, how diet culture and marginalization rob us of the ability to truly meet our needs emotionally, why health at every size and intuitive eating are better approaches for true health, and so much more. It's a really good one. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Annie who writes, I'm an aspiring health at every size public health professional, and I was wondering if you had any recommendations on how to frame changes in the built environment, like increased access to low-cost fruits and vegetables or access to food in general, improved biking infrastructure, more connected public transportation, and accessible sidewalks and parks that support health for everyone without stigmatizing or discussing the quote-unquote obesity epidemic. Cheers. Love your podcast. I'm always so excited to listen to it. So thanks, Annie. That's a great question. Uh, And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. Um, So yeah, this is a great question. And I think that's so important to be considering when you're doing public health work around stuff like the built environment. Big picture, I would say, just talk about all the other reasons these things are helpful for people's well-being without mentioning the quote-unquote obesity epidemic. Um, And you can talk about research on health disparities. I think that's a really good place to start Um, health disparities between privileged people and people in marginalized groups like, you know, people in lower social class or people with less income or people with less education, people in marginalized groups, you know, people with racial identities that are marginalized in our society, of course. And of course, also people with weight stigma. All of those things are associated with worse health outcomes in the research. And so you can talk about that and just leave out the problematic stuff where they make, quote unquote, obesity a disease, because unfortunately, in a lot of research, even research on health disparities and social determinants of health, there's still some talk of the supposed obesity epidemic. So I think that's uh, something to really look at and try to leave out of your discussion or better yet, sort of bake in awareness of weight stigma and actually call it out by name. So if you're writing grants or literature reviews or papers on these public health initiatives, you can really bake in awareness of weight stigma and explain in these papers why we can't frame, you know, changes in the built environment in terms of a quote unquote obesity epidemic because this is stigmatizing and because a huge body of research really shows that weight stigma is an independent risk factor for chronic diseases and other health issues. So of course, if you're working in the public health field and trying to help public health, you don't want to do something that's going to increase people's risk of you know negative health outcomes, right? 
So talk about weight stigma in your rationale for why you're not discussing the so-called obesity epidemic. And you can explain that instead of focusing on body size, you're going to focus on all the other reasons why changes in the built environment are helpful for people's well-being, independent of body size, and that there's actually a robust body of research on this, you know, supporting people's health in all kinds of ways that have nothing to do with body size. So, you know, you can talk about, like, for example, food insecurity and lack of access to food, right? That's a huge social justice issue and a source of psychological stress, which in turn is a risk factor for chronic disease. And same with lack of access to reliable transportation, for example, because that can cause people to miss or be late for work. Um, That can cause a lot of stress. And we know that work-related stress is a risk factor for chronic disease. Um, So, you know, these aspects of the built environment that are disparate between people who have privilege and people who don't, people who are marginalized, is one contributor to the health disparities that these people experience. You know, it's like not just one thing, of course. And I think in the obesity epidemic rhetoric around the built environment, it makes it out to be just one thing. It makes it out to be people would not be fat if they had access to fruits and vegetables or people would not be fat if they could walk to work or ride their bike instead of, you know, driving or whatever. But it's like, A, people being fat is not a health problem in and of itself, as we're always talking about on the podcast. And of course, I'm using the word fat in a fat acceptance spirit, in the spirit of fat acceptance, not in the spirit of anything pejorative. And we we know that it's more complicated than the so-called obesity epidemic rhetoric makes it out to be in terms of the built environment is just one thing contributing to health disparities among people in larger bodies or people in marginalized identities of all kinds. So, you know, you can talk about that, too. You can really bake that into any papers and research that you do on, you know, the built environment showing that this is important and it's necessary, but it's not the whole thing, right? That we have to do other work to contribute to public health equality in society. And this is sort of the tip of the iceberg. Um, For example, too, we know that having access to spaces to move one's body, move people's bodies is helpful for people's health, regardless of weight. But I want to also be sure to point out that if you're recovering from compulsive exercise or overuse injuries, then what you actually need is rest. You don't need regular movement right now. So it's not one size fits all, right? It's not the same prescription for everybody because there are lots of people in our society who overdo it with exercise, with movement and get compulsive about it, especially because of weight stigma, especially because we live in a society that stigmatizes body size so much that many people are engaging in really compulsive relationships with the movement and end up with injuries from overuse that they need to take care of and they need to rest. So, you know, in general, yes, moderate, gentle movement is helpful for people's health but it's only if they haven't gone to the extremes of compulsive exercise. So there's a lot of nuance in this stuff, right? I think you're probably hearing as I describe this that it's not an easy case to make that like, yes, changes in the built environment will always be helpful for people's health. Getting everybody moving more is always helpful. It's like, no, not necessarily because for some people, more rest is actually what they need and not moving is what they really need or not moving in a compulsive way. And we also know, for example, that eating fruits and vegetables is helpful for people's health independent of weight status. But again, that's in the context of an overall intuitive relationship with food where you're not compulsively eating fruits and vegetables the way people with disordered relationships with food tend to do, like people with orthorexia, people with other you know, eating disorder not otherwise specified or other specified eating disorders or undiagnosed eating disorders or chronic dieting. You know, People with all those conditions are harming their health through the disordered relationship with food. 
and are probably eating a ton of fruits and vegetables or in a lot of cases are eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and the number of fruits and vegetables they're eating doesn't tell the whole story of their health status because you can actually make yourself really unhealthy by compulsively eating fruits and vegetables or by having any sort of disordered relationship with food, right? So again, increasing access to fruits and vegetables where people can include them in their life as part of their meals because they genuinely find them tasty and satisfying and because they're culturally appropriate appropriate, like because, you know, certain vegetables are a present and part of a certain ethnicity's cuisine and other vegetables are part of other ethnicities' cuisines, right? So, you know, fruits and vegetables can be definitely a part of a really balanced and nourishing relationship with food, but as long as it doesn't go in this compulsive direction. And we don't just want to make everybody eat kale all the time because that's not culturally appropriate either, right? So, you know, we want to make sure that access to fruits and vegetables includes access to culturally appropriate fruits and vegetables so that it's not like, what am I supposed to do with this weird head of kale that, you know, isn't part of my cuisine's identity, isn't something that I am used to making and doesn't make sense. So I think it's really important to put these conversations about the built environment in context of all these larger issues, these psychosocial issues and social determinants of health that affect people's relationships with food, that affect people's ability to um, engage with movement or fruits and vegetables or whatever in a balanced way. Um, So I think that would be a great place to start. And I'll list some Uh, scientific resources here that you could use in writing any grants or research papers. But just a trigger warning for these and all scientific papers, because basically all scientific research contains some mentions of weight and BMI numbers and the so-called obesity epidemic. You know, it's really hard to escape that in scientific publishing. So with that said, For weight stigma, a great place to start would be the paper Weight Science, Evaluating the Evidence for a Paradigm Shift by our past food psych guests, Linda Bacon and Lucy Aframore. That has a good overview of research on weight stigma up until 2011. It also has a really good overview of health at every size research um, in general. And then for more recent research on weight stigma, you could just do a PubMed search for weight stigma and weight bias. I'd be aware that some quote-unquote obesity epidemic researchers have now gotten interested in weight stigma. So read the research carefully to make sure there's not any weight bias baked into those papers. One that I actually really like is a paper from 2015 called Weighed Down by Stigma, How Weight-Based Social Identity Threat Contributes to Weight Gain and Poor Health, um, which is actually pretty haze-informed despite still mentioning weight gain as an outcome of weight stigma. Because again, that's just what happens in the scientific publishing industry at this point in time. There's also a special issue of the Journal of Social Issues, Volume 7 number two from 2014 that's entirely devoted to racial and ethnic discrimination and how that creates health disparities and social injustice. So that could be a good place to look for info about um, how differences in the built environment related to poverty and social inequity contribute to health outcomes. And again, I would be aware that there is some obesity epidemic rhetoric in those papers, but there's some really important stuff in there too. So I would say take a look and sort of take the stuff about body size with a grain of salt. You can also do PubMed searches for health disparities and social determinants of health, and you should find some more helpful literature that way as well. Again, you know, taking it with a grain of salt and keeping it in context of this research is still coming out of diet culture, even though um, it's probably much further along in the sort of haze spectrum than other research because it acknowledges the social determinants of health. It acknowledges health disparities for um, being important determinants of people's health. 
but it's still coming out of a context of medicalization of body size, a.k.a. the quote-unquote obesity epidemic, and that is sort of endemic to um, scientific publishing at this point in time. So critical lens on all of it. And I hope that helps. And thank you so much for the work you're doing. We really need more public health professionals who are steeped in health at every size and looking to push back on the obesity epidemic rhetoric. So thank you. To submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want a whole library of answers from me to help you master health at every size and intuitive eating so that you can reclaim your life from diet culture and get back to living, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You'll get to ask me all your questions in the exclusive monthly Q&A podcast for the course. And I'm also in our private Facebook group, which is exclusively for course participants every weekday, along with my team and an amazing community of several hundred fellow participants who are there for you on this journey, going through it alongside you. You'll also get lifetime access to the course materials, which includes dozens of hours of audio and written content, answering hundreds of specific questions about intuitive eating, and a wealth of journal exercises and meditations to help you put intuitive eating and body acceptance into practice in your own life. So you can keep circling back to this material and getting support in our private community for as long as you need. And that's why I made it lifetime access, because I know that the journey of breaking free from diet culture can be a really winding one and requires a lot of ongoing support. So that is there for you in this course. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and break free from diet culture for good, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Judith Matz. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Well, I think I was really fortunate in that I grew up in a family where there was enough money to buy food, basically whatever we wanted. And I had a mom who never dieted and never talked about dieting. So I grew up being what we now call attuned or intuitive eating. I was fed that way. There was plenty of food. No one ever told me when to eat, but food was put out on a regular basis. And well, actually, when I was a kid, I was kind of known as a picky eater. I only liked, I think it was like grilled cheese and hot dogs, of all <laughs> things. And I remember my aunt saying I was never going to be able to have a social life only eating those things. But, you know, we grow out of them. And I liked all kinds of foods, ethnic foods, just about everything. But sweets were never off limits. We always had plenty. So growing up, I had a really positive relationship with food. I didn't really think about it. I just, you know, ate what I was hungry for when I was hungry. But that changed actually was toward the end of high school. And that's when, you know, you think of high school and teens and girls and all the talk, a lot of diet talk, a lot of body comparison. And of all things, I had a boyfriend who said to me, I was Judy then, not Judith. Judy, you're so thin. And, you know, if you could see my family, you could see we're just all small people. We're short, we're thinner. But when he said that, I thought, well, if thin is good, isn't thinner better. And I certainly wouldn't want to get fat. So you can hear the fat phobia right there. And all of my friends were dieting and it was a way to be part of the gang. And so for the first time in my life, without pressure really from anyone, and I don't think my parents knew what I was doing, but I just started to restrict all kinds of foods. I have such a strong memory of being in my bedroom when my mom was making it was meatloaf and it smelled so good but I wasn't going to eat. And I kept the door shut and I felt so virtuous. You know, it's that feeling like a high, I'm in control. And so as I started to restrict, for the first time, I actually started to binge. 
And not that I made the connection at that point, but I would find myself at a friend's house. Her mom used to buy these like Sara Lee cakes and we'd eat, you know, I'd eat like half a banana cake. And, you know, and, and that's how it went. And so I went on to college, still in diet mode, diet mentality. I tried to eat from the salad bar. In fact, when I think about it, I had a, she lived next door to me in the dorm and she was a good friend of mine and she was very thin and she only ate and I really admired it. Now, when I look back, I'm pretty sure she had anorexia, but we didn't know that then. You know, this is back like in the mid 70s before eating disorders were really being talked about. Um, but that's what I tried to emulate. But then I binge it on cheesecake. Mm. Yeah, that diet restrict si- or that restrict binge cycle, right? Right, exactly. And I mean, most people listening to this, you know, have experienced it, I think, at some point that the more you restrict, then the more you start to crave the very foods you you don't allow yourself. So I was sitting having uh, lunch at my dorm with a history professor. And the only thing I remember from that conversation is telling him I would never be able to eat a cookie again without feeling guilty. Like of all things to be talking about, I have no idea why that's where the conversation went. But again, it was that preoccupation, that focus. And during that time, I started to gain weight, you know, for the first time. And then it became, okay, well, now I have to keep dieting. And so this went on for me through college and through graduate school. And then I had an experience after graduate school um, that really changed my relationship with food. So I was, I moved to Boston. It was a summer before I was going to come back to what I'm going to call my real life in Chicago. I grew up in the Chicago area, but I had always loved the East Coast. And and so I had headed out there and I was like in this tiny studio, no scale, no mirror. And I was just so sick of dieting. I just said, screw it. I'm taking the summer off. I'll deal with it when I get back to my real life in the fall in Chicago. And at the same time, I was a server at Legal Seafood in Boston. Ah, love it. Yeah, I loved it too. And there was like, you know, plenty of food available. And this was before mixins were popular with ice cream, but I think they started in the Boston era. There was Steve's ice cream with Oreo cookie mixins. And so I would just buy a container, not really think about it. But at the end of the summer, I realized I was back to what was like normal eating for me, you know? And actually, you know, it's not that I want to focus on weight in any way, but my body was back to what was normal for me, you know? And this is before I was doing any work with eating issues, knew anything about what we're talking about today, but it just clicked for me, like that it was the diets that were causing the overeating. I was never somebody who was reaching for food to deal with other kinds of feelings. And so when it clicked, I just made myself a promise that if there was ever anything I wanted to eat, and I thought I shouldn't eat it because it was, quote, too fattening, I would have it to prove to myself I could. And so that was kind of my struggle and the end of my struggle with food. And I think the reason I could get through it is quickly in the scheme of things. I mean, I'm still talking about six years here, but it's because I had something to go back to because I was raised this way. So when I realized the diets were causing problem, I was used to listening to hunger. I was used to eating what I was hungry for and I was used to stopping when I was full. Yeah. So that took me right back there. And I'm grateful that I, like I said, grew up in a household where dieting just was never a thing. Do you know why that is? Why your mom never dieted and why, you know, your parents sort of let you have an attuned relationship with food? Because even at that time, I think diet culture was really raging in the U.S. So it's even, you know, sort of anomalous for the 60s, right, to have a family that didn't focus on that stuff. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I've never, I mean, on the one hand, I guess the fact that we are just in general a smaller family, you know. Thin privilege. 
yeah, thin privilege fit into the cultural norm. But even still, there's a lot of, I mean, I can think of my friends' moms. I mean, there were still a lot of moms who, in theory, had thin privilege, but were still more concerned, you know. And I think, you know, my mom is somebody who, it's a way to express her connection and affection for people is through food. She liked to bake. She liked to cook certain, you know, kind of special foods. And, you know, that was something we did often as a family was come together around food. Yeah. So it just got to have that nice sort of joyful component to it. And it was never something that was fraught. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's so helpful and important, I think, for being able to come back to your roots with food and your, you know, I mean, we're all born as intuitive eaters, I always say, but then we all get, you know, for the most of us living in diet culture, get sort of waylaid at some point and get away from it. Like what interferes? What are all the things that get in the way of what we're born knowing how to do? You know, um, we have Weight Stigma Awareness Week, and I wrote a blog for um, for BETA, the Binge Eating Disorder Association, and it was called something like, you know, raising resilient children in a fat shaming world. I, that may not be the exact title, but that was exactly what I was writing about. Was you know, we can't protect our kids from all that's out there in terms of like eating issues and weight concerns and what they're going to be bombarded with. But if we model certain behaviors around food and how we talk about our bodies and help them feel strong in those ways, even if they get waylaid along the way, they have something strong to come back to. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that like, you know, you had that six year kind of period of getting waylaid by other aspects of the culture, right? It wasn't in your family, but it found you. Like it found you in high school through the way that boyfriend, you know, made this sort of innocent seeming comment. And like, of course- And connection with girlfriends. Yes. And compliments are so toxic. Like I think that, you know, those compliments and those connections that people make over dieting and that bonding that people have, it's like, we all want to bond. We all want some connection with people. And it feels really good to have that way of connecting, but it's over something that's really really detrimental. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you're saying too about a compliment, like, yes, it was a compliment. I mean, it was meant to be a compliment, you know, and he didn't know anything about all of this stuff around body image, but you know, that kind of a compliment, oh, you're so thin, you look great. There's a strong message in that, you know, and that like, I recently got an email from an acquaintance who was telling me, um, she was asking me what to do next because her daughter Um, she said, was dieting and got down to a healthy weight and looked great and then kept going. And even as she wrote it, she wasn't getting the contribution of the family in saying, oh, wow, it's so good you're losing weight. You know, and the messages that, that get passed down. And I just think there's so much awareness people need to have around how they're complicit in diet culture, even when they don't intend it. Absolutely. That's such an important point. And especially like this idea that there's some sort of line between quote unquote healthy weight loss where you end up looking great and like the disordered, you know, situation where people end up losing enough weight to look emaciated and then triggering, you know, fear in the parents and caregivers or loved ones or whatever, like, oh, wow, you really have an eating disorder. And the behaviors were exactly the same on either side of that line. It's just what's culturally considered to be, you know, looking good versus looking sick. Right. And the you look great is such a small window of where, you know, people aren't understanding that they're promoting a certain body size and that that's toxic for their children and and for everybody around them. It's interesting right now with what's going on with Weight Watchers, like they have just announced that they're going to give free 
<sighs> dieting to teens. I mean, at the time we're recording this, hopefully they will rethink Christy, that. You know, but. I just saw that today and it's shocking. I haven't had a chance to do anything, but you know, I do a lot of teaching and training. And when I do, some of this information I use is like looking at the research that tells us kids who diet, no matter what weight they start at, no matter where they start, kids who diet have such a greater risk for eating disorders, for low self-esteem, for binge eating disorder. We have the research. And so for people, for Weight Watchers to ignore that research, it is unethical. Completely, completely unethical. And it's interesting how there's just no crossover or no sort of connection sometimes between the eating disorder research that's very solid and robust and has been here for, you know, decades now and the mainstream diet culture, the mainstream, you know, which they, I'm sure Weight Watchers has all kinds of research that they're trying to use to back up their claims, you know, about weight loss and body size and stuff. And, and unfortunately, you know, none of that research is true, is valid, but there's a sort of divide between the two. Yeah. It's just so sad, you know, to think of, I mean, we both know what people go through, the shame, you know, when, when they start dieting and it doesn't work. And you know, I see people individually for counseling and I can't, I mean, just about everyone will look back and say, if only, like, if only I hadn't started dieting, you know, look back at pictures and say, what was I thinking? You know, I was fine. That's really a common thread, I think. And a lot of people who've come on the podcast have also said, you know, like, it's not to say that being in a larger body is bad or that they should have dieted even if they were in a larger body. But the first time someone told them they were too fat and put them on a diet, they look back at those pictures and they're like, that's not a fat kid. I don't see that in that picture. Exactly. And even if they were a heavier kid, it's still the pain and shame of that whole cycle. And people still tend to get even heavier. And, and like you said, we're not judging one body is better than another. It's just, we want people to focus on behaviors that are going to support and nourish their bodies, whatever size they're at. Right. And this disordered restrict binge cycle that people get on through diets is not nourishing, is not supportive of health. Like it's very problematic. And so. Yeah. And when I talk about the diet binge cycle, I mean, I'm sure your listeners, you know, everybody's familiar with it, but the part I always want to emphasize is the shame because when people start dieting, they'll all, just about always lose weight. And then they get that sense of control and they feel virtuous and like, I'm going to really do it this time. And as they initially lose some weight, there's so many compliments, right? People around them saying, oh, you're doing great. It's so good. You're finally taking care of yourself. And then eventually we know there's physiological and psychological reasons people break out of the diet. And when they do, and when the weight returns the people from the people around them, there is silence. And that shame, it just, it's insidious. When I listen with to people talk about their experience, it is just so painful. And then that shame leads to the next diet. And I know, you know, if parents understood the shame they were causing, I mean, most parents want what's best for their kids. And they think that this is what's going to help because they want their kids to fit in, but they do not understand the damage they're doing. So yes, I'll be writing Weight Watchers or figuring out some way to sign that petition. Good. It's yeah, no, me too. I'm I'm on board with that because it's not okay. And I think that's a really important point that you bring up about the shame because that's what keeps people going back to diets for more, right? That's what, you know, it sounds like 
you sort of had this idea and I had this idea in the beginning of my dieting journey and my eating disorder development was like, you know, if I just do this, if I just have the willpower and the discipline to do this, then I can overcome these binges that I'm having and, you know, sort of get rid of that piece and continue with a restrictive part that I so dearly want, not understanding the connection between the two. When I talk about the shame, I always think about like, First, there's the shame, the person has shame about their body, like my body isn't okay, right? And I feel shame. So I'm going to be the good girl or the good guy and do what society tells me, which is to diet. And then when that fails, now I feel shame about my failure. You know, it's that double whammy. Totally. And like, you know, many people have pointed out what other product would have a 95 plus percent failure rate and keep people coming back for more and thinking it's their fault that the product is not working. Like that would never happen with a computer or a light or car or whatever, you know. I use the example if you went, you know, if you're a woman and you go to your ob for birth control and they say, hey, 5% chance it'll work. <laughs> like, Right. Do that? (laughs) No, that would be, you know, ludicrous. Right. Yeah. I know. It's such a shame that people end up on that cycle. And so, you know, I know you've written a lot about that cycle, right? The diet binge cycle and the sort of particular symptom of overeating and how that comes out of dieting. So I'd love to kind of dig into that a little bit. And yeah, so there's a lot of ways I'd love to talk about it with you would say that when I started working with this, and I'll tell you a little bit more about how I came to do this work professionally. But, you know, I'm trained as a therapist. And when I was trained, it was psychodynamic therapy, where we would understand the underlying reasons people had symptoms. And the belief I had, but the belief I think so many therapists had and still have, is that once somebody understands the underlying reasons that they're overeating, that the symptom will disappear. So after grad school, I worked in a mental health center for about four years. And I had my first client who maybe now would fit the criteria for binge eating disorder. The word we used then was compulsive eating. And so we did all that work with understanding the underlying causes of her overeating, the things that might take her to turn to food when she was, you know, I don't even know if I was talking about physical hunger then. And as we did that, her life got a lot better in that she started dating for the first time. And actually, she met her husband. She found a career path. She just felt better in life, her you know, self-esteem, more connected to people. But nothing changed in her eating. We just did some good therapy. And around that time, after I'd been working with her, I left and I started a small private practice. She came with me. But I was doing some postgraduate work and I was on the eating disorders team. That was the most interesting thing to me. And as I was kind of putting together some small jobs, you know, to support myself during this time, I ended up working with the Optifast program. Do you remember? Mm. Are you surprised? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So those liquid fasting programs in the 1980s where we saw Oprah, right? She did Optifast and carried her red wagon across the stage full of the amount of fat she lost. So I was helping people. These were the psychological groups. So when they finished these three months of just drinking these liquid fasts, so these terrible tasting milkshakes for three months, talk about willpower, you know, that they were learning, you know, it doesn't even matter what they were learning because it, it really didn't help anybody. In fact, if I could go back and write letters of apology to all those people, I would do that. But the idea was that they were going to have these new behaviors in place so they wouldn't turn to food. And after I had had my first child and I was leaving there, 
Some of them wanted to come with me because they were in what was called a maintenance group. They were at the time successful by society standards and that they were keeping the weight off. And so I continued a group in my practice that at that point, you know, it was called a lifestyle group, that fake word for dieting, yeah, right? Yeah, just another yeah. word for diet. Yep. And, but at the time, it was low-fat eating and exercise. So they were doing that. But in order to do it, they had to, like, write down every single thing they ate. You know, if they were at a party and there was food they hadn't planned for, they were in a panic. Um, some of them were over-exercising. And I was just starting to think, wow, they are so preoccupied with food. If this is what I'm helping people to do, I don't think I want to have any part of this. And around that time, I had read Overcoming Overeating by Jane Hirschman and Carol Munter. Are you, have you read that, Christy? I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with it. You know, a lot of things reference it. Yeah. I mean, they were really, you know, that's one of the first non-diet books. They were pioneers in the non-diet field. And when I read their book about how the deprivation of diets causes overeating and what they called demand feeding, which is really the same as intuitive eating. And I use the phrase attuned eating. It clicked for me professionally, what I was seeing with the people I was working with. And also personally, it fit my own experience that when I was dieting, I overate. And when I was able to quit dieting, I um, recalibrated my relationship with food and I could eat, you know, whatever I wanted in a way that felt nourishing and pleasurable to me. So at that point, I decided, yeah, this is the direction I'm going. <laughs> and I've never looked back. And so I actually worked with Jane and Carol for a long time. I became their Chicago center, myself and a, a colleague of mine, um, Carol, not Carol Munter, but another Carol in Chicago. Um, we started the Chicago center and we did a lot of work with Jane and Carol. This was in the early nineties. We had a newsletter. This is before you could use social media. So we, we would write a newsletter quarterly that got mailed to people who are on our mailing list. And you know, I really got a lot of my training from them by going to some of their workshops. But what I came to understand and what is so challenging with therapists still, and I do a lot of training with therapists because I want people to understand this, is that all the understanding in the world about why people eat does not solve the problem for people who are binge eating or eating in ways that make their bodies uncomfortable, that you really have to help people build that internal structure of learning to reconnect with cues of hunger and fullness, to honor them, to start to trust their bodies again. And it's only once they do that and start to feel calmer with food, start to feel more relaxed, that they're in a stronger position to look at any emotional overeating components if they exist. Not everybody who is struggling with the diabetes cycle is eating because of emotional reasons. But for people who are turning to food is like their primary, you know, we all eat sometimes when we're not hungry and it may be connected to an emotion we're having. But when it's somebody's primary way of managing their distress, it can be pretty upsetting and pretty uncomfortable to them. And so as a therapist, I'm always interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one thing if it's, you know, an occasional coping mechanism like we all have, which, you know, like Ellen Satter says in her definition of normal eating includes sometimes eating when you're not hungry just because it tastes good or because you want some comfort or whatever. But also, you know, if it's your only coping mechanism, it's really 
can be problematic. But I like what you said about, you know, that not all people who are on this restrict binge cycle are emotional eaters, because I think that's a concept that has gotten really perpetuated by diet culture, where people now are self-diagnosing themselves as emotional eaters and thinking of their eating as emotional, not really understanding the biological piece and the piece of, you know, their self-care through food, right, is, is missing. That was very much my experience. And I've seen that in a lot of clients, too. Too, where, you know, for me, when I was having those binges after restricting all day, I'd be like, God, you know, I got to just figure out what's at the root of it, what's emotionally driving me to eat these foods. And, you know, there would be a lot of emotion going into it because I was anxious about the process. I was ashamed. I was berating myself. So, of course, it feels very emotional and it feels like the food is sort of giving some soothing or comfort. But when you take away that shame and that self-stigma and allow, you know, your body to actually be nourished. I think for a lot of people, the feeling of emotional eating just disappears. Yeah. You know, so like when somebody comes to me and again, they're coming to a therapist, so often they'll say they're emotional eaters and I'll say, yeah, maybe. And it's important, but we're not going to be so interested in that right now. Because, you know, if you're somebody who has been dieting, even if you believe there's an emotional overeating component to your eating and you go for the chips or the cookies, how do you know what's driving it? Right. How do you know if it's the restriction or something that's really bothering you? And so by beginning with helping people reorganize their eating, ending by ending the restrictions, you know, giving themselves permission, learning how to listen, like you're saying, a lot of that overeating goes away. So, you know, I'll sometimes ask people to ballpark, you know, when they like, how much of your eating do you think is attuned eating? Um, or, you know, how often are you eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, and people at the beginning might say 0%, 5%, 10%. And over time, that gets, you know, we start, I just think about collecting experiences. Like, we don't want to turn this into the stomach hunger diet. Like, you can only eat now when you're hungry. I mean, that's not how it works. You kind of, you know, gather experiences, and each experience helps you start to reconnect with your body and see how much better that can feel physically and emotionally. But I kind of wait until people are starting to say, yeah, 70, 80, 85% of the time my eating feels that way. Then they're in a much stronger position to identify those times that they're really using the food for the emotional part, you know, for the soothing or the distress. Does that make sense to the way I'm describing it? Yeah, that's very helpful. I think it's really nice, too, to have this idea of, you know, you're not able to really suss out the emotions from the biological need and the diet-driven deprivation and binging um, until you're, you know, more attuned in your eating, until you've dropped the diet rules and restrictions and the diet mentality enough to start actually honoring your hunger and your fullness. And then maybe you can start to suss out, are there any times when, you know, I'm using food as a coping skill that maybe something else would be a better coping skill instead? And it's not from a place of because I feel like sometimes, you know, I've seen this a lot in the popularization of emotional eating, like people like Janine Roth or something where there's this idea that if you are eating emotionally, kind of like you were describing before, if you're eating emotionally and then you learn to do something else to manage your emotions instead of the eating, then you're going to lose weight eventually because you're going to drop this, you know, emotional eating behavior. You won't be overeating as much. And that's just not true. Okay, and it's, that makes me crazy that I yes. not, not you no, I know. <laughs> but yes, this idea that gets promoted that when you understand the emotional eating, you'll stop and you'll lose weight because it contributes to the shame again, right? Like what happens if you do start to become an attuned eater 
And you do start to develop some different ways to manage your feelings. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about how that works, at least in my practice. But you do start to do those things. And hey, your weight stays the same, or you get heavier, or maybe you get thinner as a side effect of the work you're doing. But the idea that somehow if you didn't lose weight, you did it wrong again. You know, you must not really be managing your feelings properly because otherwise we know you would have lost weight. How dare people keep contributing to that? People who should know better. And, you know, when I I do a lot of training of therapists and the thing I love doing is teaching them about weight stigma that they don't even know they have, you know, so helping them like look at their associations to thin and fat and understand the stereotyping that's going on. And I really believe this that we are all part of this culture. And so, of course, we all carry some internalized weight stigma. You know, I know I did. I mean, I know in the beginning when I worked with Optifest, I believed people should lose weight. And I believed even if it was a small percentage, it was worth it for that person. Shouldn't we help them? And, you know, my beliefs evolved as I listened to person after person and their stories and the pain and the shame and seeing the, you know, the patterns and understanding this is not right. But what I want to say is I kind of digress here is that I can be really compassionate with people that those are their beliefs, because if they haven't been challenged, if they haven't had any way to raise their consciousness about it, then we're all part of diet culture. But once you've learned about it, once you've been in this field, then I think that if you're still contributing to that, you know, you're complicit if you're contributing to that shame in any way. And I, I, you know, I feel like it's just really important to call that out. Oh, completely. I 100% agree because I think there are those people who have been exposed to the ideas about health at every size and diet culture and weight stigma and understand the harm that it causes and yet want to still keep a foot in the diet culture world because it sells or that's what they think anyway, you know, that they believe they have this belief that they can't take that foot out of the world and just, you know, stand firmly or root themselves firmly in the health at every size non-diet world because they're going to somehow lose business, right? I know it can be tricky for people, but it's a problem. It's a problem. <laughs> and I, you know, but I think having compassion is so important too. Like, and your experience actually is very similar to mine in the sense that I had my own journey of recovery from disordered eating and finding intuitive eating and really clicking into it because I also grew up as an intuitive eater and didn't have my own like dieting and weight loss experience and, you know, triggering off an eating disorder until I was 20. And then, you know, pretty much my whole 20s were lost to diet culture, but I I was able to kind of get it together towards the end of my 20s. But then I was switching careers to become a dietitian and I just sort of followed the line, even though I knew for me intuitive eating was what worked and I had gone through my own journey. I still was in the traditional weight paradigm because of what I was learning in grad school and because, you know, the jobs that I worked had, you know, were in that paradigm too. And it was not until a couple years into working in the field that I started to notice like, oh, the people who were doing this stuff that I'm recommending and following it to the letter have a a sort of behavior pattern that is eerily similar to what I went through. And that doesn't seem right, you know, and that was like the first seed planted. And it still took a while after that to actually come around to understanding like the deeper reasons why people end up, you know, having these disordered relationships with food, aka diet culture, and, you know, how the traditional weight paradigm that I was proffering was actually fitting into that and contributing to people's disordered eating. Right. But I think these days it's so out there, whether people have heard the words health at every size, but it, 
it's available to learn. And, you know, for me, I mean, I speak at a lot of eating conferences, but what I love doing more is training for general therapists, too. Because I feel like, you know, it's kind of what you're saying, like, we all grow up with our own experience. And that's what we know to teach. People aren't getting training. Now, dietitians are different. You guys are getting training around how to help people eat. Therapists aren't. You know, we may get a little training in graduate school about anorexia and bulimia. Maybe now that binge eating disorder has been added to the DSM-5, maybe people get some. But I still think, you know, diet culture permeates everywhere. And there's still, you know, all these same beliefs. But once people are exposed, I mean, that is my mission. And I think yours, once you're exposed to it as a professional, and then you listen to your clients through that lens, I don't know how you can't see what you saw and what I saw. If you really listen, and you observe what people experience. Yeah, I think you have to have such an investment in the traditional paradigm to just not hear it or something. Because otherwise, if you are open and you are listening, I think it becomes very obvious. And that is what so many of our clients experience and so many of the people who come through the door for not even necessarily eating issues. It's just a sort of side thing. Like I know with a lot of therapists that I've connected with will say people come in for anxiety or come in for depression or come in for whatever, but actually there's this eating component going on too that they've just never opened up to anyone about. And that was my experience as well. Like I tried opening up to some therapists about it, was sort of shot down because I didn't fit the picture. I wasn't emaciated, so they didn't think I had an eating disorder. Right. Or you're not high enough weight to think. And then we have the reverse problem. Somebody comes in higher weight and the assumption is that they have an eating problem, right? Or they're an emotional overeater. So that's another issue that we, yeah, in my field. Totally. Yeah. And I, it's really sad how many people have had that experience, too, of being told by therapists, either like you're not thin enough to have an eating disorder because they only have this one picture of what an eating disorder is or getting shamed and assumed that to have an eating disorder. And it's like, OK, we got to figure out your weight or figure out your eating because the person's in a larger body. And it's like, that's not my issue, you know. Exactly. So, you know, there's something else I'd love to share about the emotional overeating part that comes up in for me as a therapist and with other therapists that they don't always understand. People can get caught in the diet binge cycle because they start dieting, they think they're too fat. Or sometimes like I've had clients who with the emotional overeating, the issues don't have anything to do with diet culture when they start. You know, food is like the way we come into this world to be soothed, right? I mean, that's how we're first soothed is through the breast or the bottle. It's comforting. And so like I think about like one client several years ago, you know, I'm not going to get into history, but she was even at like nine or 10 years old, she was coming home alone and she was very scared and she was very lonely and food was her friend. I mean, that was her constant companion and nobody saw the distress she was in. But as she kept overeating every day, she gained weight. And then that's where the attention went, right? Like, because she was gaining weight. So now everybody got concerned and started putting her on a diet. And then people start talking about her weight is the problem instead of really understanding the deeper issues of how disconnected and lonely and overwhelmed she's feeling. And so, so often what you see, you know, is that somebody reaches for food to manage a feeling. They may be aware that something's bothering them or not. And the minute they do, they start yelling at themselves, right? Like, oh, here I go again. I can't believe I'm doing this. I shouldn't be eating. I'd better go on a diet as if going on a diet will solve the real problem, which is that they had a feeling that was too uncomfortable to be with. And diet culture encourages that. Yes, just lose weight, then you'll feel better. 
And it also encourages the turning to food for comfort more and more because actually like when people are deprived of food and are on that restrict binge cycle, it's all the more impetus, biological impetus to reach for food when an emotion comes up and it's sort of just reinforcing what was already the pattern, you know, before. Yeah. And actually, Christy, that's why the food works so well. Because if you can eat candy when you want candy and you go to eat it when you're having an intense feeling, it won't do anything for you. But if you're not allowed to eat candy, if candy is bad and it glitters, the minute you start eating the candy, then you start yelling at yourself. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. And it takes you away from the feeling. And interestingly, like sometimes if you really listen to what somebody's saying, like they might be angry. Let's say they're angry at their partner but they take that anger and now they turn it on themselves. Like there's all kinds of ways food can help people. You know, for some people, they'll eat to the point of being numb and not feeling anything, but sometimes it can be that distraction or soothing. But diet culture frames it like, yeah, you've got an eating problem. You've got to stop eating so much versus understanding it's really a calming problem. So like I'll work with clients again, after they've gotten the attuned eating or intuitive eating structure more in place to ask, you know, I'm reaching for food and I'm not hungry. What would I think about or feel right now? And in the beginning, you know, it's, can I wait? And they might answer might be no. And it's fine. Like there's no yelling. There's no judgment if you need to go to the food. And sometimes for people, especially I'd like, I think of one client where there was just such trauma. It was a gift that she had food to turn to. Like it was a good thing. And, I, and our work initially was to teach her to just be compassionate with why she needed to do that and how it was helping her. But over time, like one client recently said, well, what would I do instead? And so she just started to ask the question, like, I'm reaching for food to soothe me. Is there anything else that would be soothing right now? And, you know, like if you look at diet programs, they would teach people, okay, dieting is all about control, right? And willpower. And so don't eat, go take a bath. Don't eat, go take a walk. You know, there's all these yeah, kind of substitute things, things one for one, right? Like Right. But what's really different is to be able to say, what else will, is there something else that will soothe me right now? And perhaps you say, yes, a walk would soothe me, but it's not about control. You have permission to go to the food if you want to. And you're, it's not that you're just making yourself not eat or saying I'm bad if I eat. You're saying there's something bothering me. Is there any way to, in the moment, it's just like making a match with food. Is there anything that might feel better to soothe me? Because the food for people with emotional overeating or binging might feel good in the short run. But usually it feels pretty terrible in the long run, like being really overfull and the emotional distress that comes from the binging. So sometimes people start to find that there's something else. They start to build some other ways or like maybe using some mindfulness practice that not because we're saying don't eat, use mindfulness, but that actually is calming to me. What I'm needing to do is feel calmer right now. So how does that sound to you? I love it. And I think that it's so important to sort of stress that this is like, once people are already pretty attuned with their hunger and fullness cues and honoring them, because I think one of the things that I see people get confused about is like doing this practice too early of asking like, well, what else? But it's still coming from a diet mentality place of like there needs to be something else instead of food. Right. And it's, you know, from that rule based lens. I am so with you. So I think of sometimes we use the word kind of organic or like working your way out of it. So, you know, I, and, and I always instead of thinking about being in control, I like to use the phrase being in charge so I can have it if I want it. It's always okay. It's always up to me. How will I feel? Is that okay with me? Um, so, you know, I think of somebody recently, you know, had 
pizza was off limits. And she was saying how wonderful it was to be at a family gathering where there was pizza with permission, like to be one of the gang and have it and, and how much she enjoyed it. And then when somebody said, do you want more? She thought about it and she was like, yeah, I want half a slice more. I mean, it was really clear to her. She wanted more, but not a lot more. That's being in charge. And that's awesome when people, you know, get to that place. So the same person, she just was telling me about something that happened in her family that was really, really, really upsetting. And because it was so upsetting, she left, she needed to leave. And when she got home, she said to her partner, hours later, I just realized for the first time I got through something like that and it didn't even occur to me to turn to food. I mean, to me, that's what emotional overeating is like something like that. That would have been the first place she would have gone. But like you're saying, it's fueled by diet culture and the diet mentality. And as we break into that and as a therapist, help people, you know, some people it'll happen naturally, but for other people, they still need help them with some of that emotional regulation. Right. Because there are the people like we were talking about who it's not actually an emotional issue at all. It's just an issue of the restrict binge cycle. It's an issue of diet culture and sort of letting go of that and allowing yourself to eat when you need to takes care of the problem. And then there are those people who there is that added layer where it's like turning to food for comfort has been sort of a longstanding thing. And there's, you know, a way in which building other coping skills would help just increase their repertoire of how to take care of themselves. But also I... I love the idea that like, you know, it can be food and something else. It doesn't have to be a trade-off. Yeah. And I just wouldn't want somebody to think like, oh, I've broken out the diet mentality. So why am I still overeating? Because there really can be that emotional, uh, let's call it regulation. Like, you know, I'll also talk about, again, being really compassionate about that because, you know, sometimes when people are in emotional trouble, they might turn to drugs or alcohol um, or get so depressed they can't get out of bed. I mean, those are all things that can happen. And I don't want to underestimate how bad the overeating or the binging can feel. But in the scheme of things, you know, I don't think it's the worst way to try to get yourself through tough times. Totally. Yeah. It's not something that's going to be so destructive to you in the long run, like drugs or alcohol could be. But eating is something and it makes complete sense. It's the first thing, like you said, that we turn to for soothing. You know, it was probably associated with a lot of other soothing components too, like being fed, being cared for, being held and, you know, rocked and having touch, like all of those things are comforting as well. And so it's all food is very wrapped up in that. Right. So it's good that somebody when they're in trouble wants to reach for comfort. Right. Yeah. It's like a natural impulse and something that should be celebrated and held with compassion, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I think that's really lovely. And yeah, I think it's sort of teasing out these layers of the idea of emotional eating or overeating is really important because with diet culture, it all just gets lumped into one thing. And I think, you know, for some folks when they are recovering and, you know, learning to really tune into their body's needs, they are still having these emotional you know, ways of turning to food and feeling like they shouldn't be. So I think it's really nice to have that framework. One of the things I learned way back from Jane and Carol, you know, when I was working with them is that part of the process is that, you know, when you're stuck in the diet binge cycle, you're anxious all the time, right? But when you start to honor your body's cues for hunger and fullness and become an attuned eater, you calm down. It's strengthening on the inside. And so then people are in a much stronger position to manage the anxiety or depression or whatever things come up. And the other thing, Christy, I love doing about this work that, again, is part of the emotional aspect of it is that 
the work with attuned eating teaches people I have needs, right? My hunger is my need. My needs are specific. I'm hungry for something in particular, and my needs can be met. I get satisfied. And that lesson that comes every time somebody practices attuned eating is something people then take out into their lives. We say attuned eating leads to attuned living. And it's just so cool to watch, you know, with my clients, see them start to apply that, like feel more entitled to their needs, understand that they have, you know, that their needs are really specific believe that their needs can be met. That's really powerful. Absolutely. And I think that's something that so many of us who struggle with our relationships with food don't really have enough of in our lives is the sense of being able to meet our own needs and being, you know, there for ourselves in this self-care way, right? So I think- To make those matches in self-care, right? Sometimes I need to be active. Sometimes I need rest. Right. Sometimes I'm hungry. Sometimes I'm a little bit hungry. Sometimes I'm a lot hungry. Sometimes I'm full. Like, yeah, just sort of recognizing all that spectrum of need and your body is okay. Having needs is okay. You know, I think that is something that, I mean, as diet culture, I think has lots of Venn diagram overlaps with like patriarchy. I mean, maybe it's a circle within patriarchy, I guess I would say, and racism and sexism and all of these other things, right, that people are oppressed in so many different ways. And it's sort of diet culture is just one way in which this coalesces to tell people like your needs aren't valid, they can't be met. Diets very specifically sort of rob us of the ability to meet our needs. And I think all these other ways in which people can be marginalized also rob them of the ability to meet their needs, right? And, you know, saying that, well, you don't deserve to have your needs met. So like the practice of recognizing what your needs are and meeting them for yourself again and again, like, you know, six times a day or whatever it is, right? But then that also brings us to the fact that what we're talking about does require privilege, having the means to meet those needs, right? Having the time and that within marginalized groups, this may not always be possible. Right. Well, it's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you're struggling with the basics, like if it's a trade-off between food and gas and heat and, you know, transportation to get to your job, like, what are you going to choose? You know, sometimes food might fall through the cracks, actually. And so even the assurance And certainly being able to get what you want. Right. And so even the assurance of having food regularly and consistently to meet your needs for just like lunch might not be there, you know. And so what would you say, you know, if someone is struggling with that? I actually had a listener ask that question in a recent episode and I tried to answer it as best I could. But I really felt like at some point the basics, like just having food consistently is so much more important than, you know, whether you can meet your need for like Captain Crunch cereal for a snack on a Wednesday, right? Like that stuff is more just about like trying to meet the basic needs as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, we, you know, I've always talked with people about if you can't, let's say, you know, you know, there's something you want and you can't get it. It's different if you can't get it because of your budget than if you don't get it because you tell yourself it's too fattening. Right. There's a probably a, a larger sense of trauma, right, and instability and insecurity there because food insecurity, you know, that's what it is, right? It's the anxiety and the instability and the sort of lack of consistency around getting your food needs met. Right. And that's certainly, you know, we've been talking today is if the reason people experience deprivation that leads to overeating is because they started a diet. But we really haven't acknowledged that often the reason people feel the deprivation is because they didn't have the access to the food. Maybe not now, but I've worked with a lot of clients where they have it now, but they didn't when they were growing up. Um, You know, we're severely deprived. I had 
one person I work with where both parents would disappear for days on end when she was a very young child. And I've had this with several clients when the money comes in, then there's an abundance of food. So they're used to there's nothing or you better get it while you can. So there's just so many stories. Everybody has their own unique story and, you know, and circumstances. And when people grow up with that, or if you're still living in that restrict, you know, it's like a deprivation overeating cycle imposed by external standards, you know, by material realities, really, rather than by diet culture. If you're living in that sort of situation or have lived in that sort of situation, I think the restrict binge pattern is actually protective. It's actually sort of a survival mechanism because that's what we evolved to do in times of famine, right? Is just to, you know, to be able to go without, but then to have as much as we can when we finally do get access to food again, because we don't know when the food's coming again. And that's a reality that a lot of people live with. Yeah. You know, I haven't actually put it in that framework before that that is how our ancestors way, way back dealt with feast and famine. Yeah, that's a huge, like, I don't know where I came up with that or stumbled on that, but I feel like it's been a huge touch point for me in this stuff because it's like, I think people, you know, again, going back to the shame, people get so down on themselves for engaging in these patterns or for, you know, not so much for the restrict side of the restrict binge cycle, but for the binge side of the restrict binge cycle, get so down on themselves. And it's like, no, actually, this saved us. This has, you know, helped us. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for that, right? This was adaptive. And the people who survived that we're the best at storing fat. Mm-hmm. And those right. are our ancestors. Those are, you know, we evolved to be able to do that because storing fat allows you to survive, you know? Yeah, I think the hardest part is when people come to realize, not because of the food insecurity that we've been just talking about, but because they chose it or it was, it was put on them to start dieting, that they've created that system biologically within their body or physiologically, right? That they've created it. And so that their body has gotten better at storing fat over the years that they've engaged in the cycle. And again, it doesn't say anything about what size people end up at. It just, you know, the anger people feel and the sadness people feel when they realize they were going along and doing exactly what they thought they were supposed to do. And it was wrong. Right. It was having the exact opposite effect of what was intended and making them feel completely miserable. In the Diet Survivor's Handbook, we go through, you know, the grief process people feel because it's such a loss for people. And so we go through those stages that come up, you know, as their way through the denial, like, I'll be the one who's going to lose the weight. Yeah, that's true for everybody else, but it's going to be me. And some of the bargaining, I don't know if you ever get this, but just let me lose weight and then I'll become an attuned eater. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All the time. <laughs> and then the anger and the sadness and then finally acceptance. And it's not like it's once you're in acceptance, you stay there. You know, you can go back and forth. But Especially in diet culture, right? Because there are things that trigger you that make you feel like, oh, maybe this one diet will work and this is going to be the one, you know, suddenly back. So right now, I think it's the intermittent fasting with all the science. I'm putting that word in quotes around it. That's what I'm hearing people. But I read this book and, you know, there's always going to be something. Always. Always. Yeah. And just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's true, right? Like the science that they're basing it on is oftentimes a study of like 10 people, you know, the bulletproof diet, right? Which people I had, I went on a couple dates with a guy a long time ago who was before the bulletproof diet was even really a thing. Was okay, like, I don't even know what the bulletproof diet uh, is. It's ridiculous. It's kind you, of, you, you, don't, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of a, a marketed to men, really. It's sort of like got this masculine 
kind of quality to it. But, you know, he was trying to tell me, and this was back when I was like still in grad school, but finally had sort of come around to intuitive eating and understood like, okay, this is, you know, the science doesn't seem accurate because he was trying to tell me, well, no, it's based on science. Like it, you know, it's really helped people lose weight and keep it off or whatever. But then he sent me what the supposed science that this was based on was. And it was like, you know, 17 men in the quote unquote obese category in living in Israel, like middle-aged or older men. Like it was like not generalizable to the population. And it was also a study that was done for like three weeks or something. You know, it was not at all something. I mean, I might be misquoting the specifics, but it's, you know, clearly it was not at all something that should have a whole legion of followers, you know, following it based on the supposed science, quote unquote. It's like, you know, and we really look at the body of evidence that we have about, you know, weight and eating and people's relationships with food and stuff. The evidence overwhelmingly favors an attuned eating or intuitive eating approach. And, you know, the associations that we see between higher body weights and worse health outcomes can largely be explained by or potentially all be explained by weight stigma, which, of course, is experienced more highly in people in larger bodies. Right. Exposure to weight stigma and bodies going up and down in weight. It's, you know, the studies show that Right, the weight cycling. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because that puts your body under a lot of stress and, you know, exacerbates that sense of famine, really, that your body feels and needs to hold on to more weight, but also, you know, has all kinds of negative repercussions on your health, like creating more inflammation, I think is another big buzzword these days, right? With diets, it's like anti inflammatory diets, which are just also based on very shoddy science. There's no actual evidence of any sort of anti-inflammatory diet out there. There's never been anything like tested and shown, okay, this lowers inflammation. And also, we don't know for sure that inflammation actually causes disease. There's a lot of association between inflammation and certain diseases, but it is thought that potentially inflammation is part of the disease process. It's actually part of how our body heals itself is to create inflammation to try to heal cells. And so, you know, maybe the causal relationship is in the opposite direction where you have a disease that creates an increase in inflammation systemically through the body to fight it. Exactly. So, you know, there's no evidence that changing your diet in this particular way is going to ward off disease. Right. But yeah, so people are just jumping on these things thinking that there's all this science behind it. But in reality, it's just, you know, correlation does not equal causation, as I'm always saying, like it's just, you know, circumstantial evidence. It's just correlation. And, you know, I'm curious about the health at every size aspect of your work and where you sort of came to understand the issues with weight stigma and bring that piece into the work that you do. Well, I think I was saying this earlier that after sitting with, you know, this is back in the 90s and I'm sitting with people who could write nutrition books, right? They know all the things to do. They've tried, you know, they've spent money, they've spent time. This idea that they're lazy is ridiculous or that they have no willpower is ridiculous. And I don't know, like I said earlier, how you can sit and listen to that and not see that there is something wrong with the culture and the expectations and how we're defining success. And so I came to understand this as a social justice issue, that the problem was not with my clients, that they were at the weight their body was meant to be. Like, I know how to help people reconnect with their hunger and fullness to get out of the diet binge cycle to work with any emotional aspects of overeating that need to be dealt with and to even feel stronger in their bodies I used to you know we always talk about body image but you know I think lately I think other people are too and I certainly am talking about internalized weight stigma 
and how to manage that. And this is still the case with the clients I see. This comes up all the time. They can feel good with me. They can feel good at home by themselves, but then they have to walk back out the door into the culture, which is their family, their friends, their doctors, their colleagues, the media, and everything is telling them that they're not okay in their bodies. Even though if you looked at their behaviors, if you just, if somebody read what their behaviors were, they'd say, yeah, this is a person who practices positive, sustainable behaviors. And they're not morally obligated to do that, but they are doing, you know, they choose to. So I, you know, before there was health at every size, there was a group called A-Help. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. So this goes way back. So I was at those conferences presenting and then, you know, Deb Burgard came along and others developing health at every size. So I've been part of the conferences and meetings and, you know, from pretty much the beginning of that. Um, So like I said, my beliefs at first were that if once people solved their emotional eating or whatever, they'd lose weight. But I saw that wasn't true. And so then the issue is to help people feel strong in their bodies. Does they deserve to live a full life? They deserve to be free of this weight stigma. And, you know, it's interesting because in some ways things have gotten better. There are so many more resources with social media. You know, there's more access to resources. I had written let's see, Beyond a Shadow of a Diet was my first book. And that was for professionals. And that was in 2004. And then um, Diet Survivor's Handbook was in 2006. And those were some of the earlier non-diet books along, you know, with others out there. But in some ways, things have gotten worse. So I feel like both are true. Like there's just more pressure on people than ever before. There's there's so much more attention to obesity. It's, It's interesting that both are true. Right. I think that, yeah, social media and the internet have given and taken away in some sense because they've given us a lot more ways to connect with other non-diet folks and build this movement. But also it's given diety people a lot more of a platform. A lot more ways to shame people. <laughs> yes. Right? Diet culture now has yes, such so much more influence in some ways. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. This is a real joy talking with you. And I'm so glad oh, it's my pleasure. to do it. Tell us where people can find you online and learn more about your work. Okay. Well, if you haven't read uh, The Diet Survivor's Handbook, that's the book that's for the general public. There's 60 easy lessons, and each lesson has an activity and a quote that's either humorous or inspirational. And then Beyond a Shadow of a Diet is meant for professionals, but anybody can read that. I have a website at judithmatz.com. And there you'll find, um, well, first of all, on the homepage, you can sign up for our newsletter. We send out a quarterly free newsletter with just updates around attuned eating, around weighty matters. We always have a, you know, a kind of a case vignette. And I also love speaking at organizations, and there's a speaking page there. So I've written a lot of blogs, and if you go to the media page, you can find connections to those as well. So I love it. That, my website would be a great place to get all of that. Great. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, too, so people can find you easily. I love your books. I love talking with you. And thank you so much for being here. This is great. Thank you, Kristen. So that is our show. Thanks again so much to Judith Matz for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies.
If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by subscribing, sharing, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see all the different places you can subscribe. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us up in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out the pro-diet messages and keep rising up in the health category. So that is my number one place to subscribe and share. But of course, there's lots of other places too. And I love Spotify. That's actually my favorite place to listen to music. And we're now available on Spotify as well. So super cool. ChristyHarrison.com slash subscribe is where you can find all that info. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to ChristyHarrison.com slash 151. That's ChristyHarrison.com slash 151. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page where it says get the transcript. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track, and I'm eternally grateful to them for helping us produce this show every week. Also, a big thanks to our community manager and content development associate, Ashley Saruya, our administrative assistant, Sarah Thompson, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under their Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who puts